For the week of March 11th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello to all. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey, senior editor with Green Tech Media in the heart of Washington, D.C. It is my favorite time of the week when I check in with my energy posse. Straight out of Virginia, now roaming the halls of Washington, is my co-host, Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at the clean energy public policy consulting firm, 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how's it going this morning? Just great. I'll tell you, we are so excited for baseball season to start that we have started watching spring training games now uh, on the weekends, uh, you know, on on TV, and which which are totally fun because they're playing people you would never normally see at Nat Stadium. So uh, we're ready. We're ready for spring. Do you ever go down south for spring training? Are you that much of a fanatic? My brothers do. I was raised in a big baseball family. So yeah, a bunch of them are down there now. And straight off the streets of New York, is our other co-host, Jigger Shah. He's founder of Sun Edison, a clean energy investor and author of Creating Climate Wealth. How are the mean streets of New York, Jigger? They're great. But, you know, going off of Catherine's point, I was with my cousin this weekend and his um, his son, my nephew, was um, um, collecting baseball cards and I brought it all back. I used to collect baseball cards and that's sort of how you know all the players and their stats and everything else. So. I still have my collection. I'm waiting for it to get more valuable so I can sell it. <laughs> but but all, all the cards that were once worth money have now declined in value, so there's not much value there. Yeah, I think everybody in our generation actually did protect their cards, and so there aren't like three left. All right. Well, this week we are going to be talking about the unrest in Ukraine Washington is abuzz with talk about natural gas exports as a geopolitical tool to weaken Russian President Vladimir Putin, and we'll look at how viable that plan really is. Then, speaking of posses, 28 senators took to the floor this week for an all-night talkathon to raise the profile of climate change in Congress. We'll look at what their strategy is and what it means in the context of upcoming elections. And then we will discuss the mini-boom in venture activity within the off-grid solar market. Of course, we'll finish out the show by telling you something you may not know. Okay, first to Ukraine. After months of violent demonstrations that eventually forced President Viktor Yanukovych to flee the country, the Russian military recently stepped in to occupy the Ukrainian region of Crimea. The move has heightened tensions between Russia and the West, and the opportunities for diplomacy are looking increasingly dim. We here at the Energy Gang don't pretend to be foreign policy experts, but as it turns out, energy is becoming an increasingly important piece of the political response to Russia's actions. Russia is the world's biggest exporter of gas, and it supplies around a third of Europe's gas by pipelines that run through Ukraine. So this standoff presents yet another energy supply risk. In response, a bipartisan group of senators has introduced a bill to speed up natural gas exports to Ukraine and other countries dependent on Russia in order to weaken Putin. House Speaker John Boehner jumped in with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week calling for more exports as well. But the problem, as many have pointed out, is that it would take a long time before exports could feasibly have an impact, if at all. So let's take a look at what lawmakers are calling for and what analysts are saying about it. Catherine, first to the politics. Um, how has Congress started moving on this issue in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so they've been using this as a reason to try to get more LNG terminals approved, um, which they've been trying to push for a while. And this gave them a bright, shiny object to focus on. But as you said, 
I cannot imagine that we would be able to win the the price war with Putin should we get into a price war with Putin because I mean he just he has so much and it's so much cheaper and so as you say I think it's going to be quite some time but it does give uh, politicians something to focus on. Well, this is politics at its finest, right? Creating policy in a vacuum without recognition that it's not really countries that sell the gas to one another, it's private companies. And setting up more export terminals doesn't guarantee that that gas goes to Europe, uh, Western Europe or Eastern Europe. So um, are the politics of this completely inflated? Well, obviously, like, you know, I think John Boehner's proposal to sort of – you know, save the Ukraine with our gas was completely debunked by Steve Muffson at the Washington Post. And, you know, he basically says the same thing you're saying, which is there's tons of infrastructure limitations. Even if the Congress approved everything tomorrow, it would take six years at least to be able to actually export gas. On top of that, our gas may not even be that affordable then. You know, everyone is talking about how our shale gas has to be $6 or $5 a million BTU just to make money for the shale gas guys. And then you have to add 5 or $6 on top of that for liquefying the gas and then shipping it over there and then turning it back into gas. And so I think the bigger thing is that Ukraine had, in 2011, the largest solar plant in the world at 100 megawatts, which is now, I think, the sixth largest solar plant in the world. And uh, the Ukraine actually has huge amounts of clean energy that it could be exploiting, um, which would save it tons of money on Russian gas. Yeah, I talked to a friend of mine, Ken Basong, who runs the Sunday campaign. He was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. And in fact, the Peace Corps just pulled 200 volunteers out. It was the biggest Peace Corps country. And now, I, you know, he's unclear what's going to happen. He was telling me that Ukraine is the least efficient country in Europe. It, the energy intensity there is two or three times any other country in the EU. Efficiency would be the biggest, most cost-effective strategy. They have had folks like the Alliance to Save Energy working in there for decades. But they could easily save 50 to 70% of energy just by doing energy efficiency. And as as um, Jigger says, there are there's huge potential, potential for clean energy. 40% of Ukraine land is suitable for wind development. There's geothermal potential, huge amount of biomass. It used to be the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and all of that stuff is left untapped. Uh, so I think, you know, and with solar, Germany is looking at investing. It seems that there is a huge amount of interest in clean energy and potential for clean energy. Yeah, but let's look at the other side of this. Take a country like Germany, which has seen explosive growth in renewables, but is still very dependent on natural gas imports from Russia. How will development of clean energy necessarily reduce that dependence. I mean, of course, it is a very important tool. I don't deny that. But if you look at the experience of Western European countries, they're still very dependent on Russia. Well, I think we have to broaden this a little bit. Look, I think if Ukraine was not using Russian gas, Ukraine would still be in the same mess that it's in today. You know, Russia uses the Ukraine to actually have a port um, on, you know, towards the Mediterranean. You actually have all these you know, sort of historical uh, partnerships between the Ukraine and Russia going back five, six hundred years. And so I don't think this is about gas. I don't think it's about energy. I think this is about politics and people and Crimea and all sorts of stuff. But I think that the underlying piece is true, which is that these countries around the world who are being threatened by Russia or other people with natural gas as a tool, 
do have the ability to switch to biomass and other sources of thermal energy um, and getting itself away from those um, sort of blackmail techniques. Yeah, they've definitely been hampered. All of these investments, USAID, World Bank, IFC, they've been hampered by the corruption in the country, the bureaucrat with bureaucrats siphoning off the resources. The one thing that could make a difference, though, is if we do penalize Russia, the people who will be most hurt are the wealthy. So the the 1% in Russia that Putin really cares about, those are the folks that are going to feel the pain. And so that's where I think we'll have the greatest impact. So who's jumping on this in the clean energy community here in Washington? You've, you know, the natural gas industry is posturing. They're both worried about potential increases in prices with massive exports and championing exports at the same time. I think uh, it's very conflicted in, in what kind of policy it wants to see. Politicians who favor fossil fuel development are jumping all over this. But I have not heard the equivalent arguments on the clean tech side. It's a real problem. You know, I think that, you know, we don't our champions are not yet comfortable coming out and saying our technologies are mature enough to actually solve these problems in the Ukraine. And there are there is some good reason for that in the sense that, you know, the big problem with the Ukraine is the same problem you have with Eastern Europe broadly, which is that they've, you know, reneged on feed in tariff contracts. They've all these other issues. And so it's not clear that our capital sources want to move at scale into the Ukraine to solve these problems. Problems. But the fact that we have the technology and the technology is ready to be able to provide all these energy efficiency measures and other things that Catherine was talking about is true. And it's sad that we don't have a champion that's willing to say that on the national stage. So I want to bring this back to the natural gas infrastructure point, because I think the political debate has largely ignored the debate in Washington has largely ignored the very real challenges and increasing natural gas exports and the impact that it would have on Russia itself. Some analysts have come out and put together some some really good uh, information on on these challenges. So, I mean, the U.S. doesn't have any um, operating plants right now that could actually ship liquefied natural gas overseas. They're building some. The first one probably won't come online until next year or 2016. And then a few others will come online in 2018 and 2019. So as you said, Jigger, we're looking at a multi-year time frame here. On the other side, Ukraine and other ports in Europe um, have limited capacity to actually take this LNG and turn it into burnable natural gas. And that's a major infrastructure problem. So they'd have to rely on a, a significant build out at the same time over in Europe. And we can't guarantee that. These are private companies that are building this and they build them based on economics, not necessarily politics. And that brings me to the final point here, which is we talk about this in the context of countries buying and selling gas. And they don't really. I mean, it's companies. They make the ultimate decision. And we could help boost gas exports, but that doesn't necessarily mean they go over to Europe. Um, natural gas prices on the spot market in Japan, for example, just hit $20 per million BTU. And they're half that in Europe. Who's to say a company isn't just going to sell gas to a country where it makes the most economic sense? I mean, that's what they'll do. And that's missing from this policy debate that I've seen. Um, but there's another side to this as well, which I think we can't ignore. And Michael Levy of the Council on Foreign Relations had a really great piece sort of looking at the complications of this issue. And he points out that if more U.S. gas does uh, hit the international market, 
that makes gas from other safer company, countries available, and Europe can import that and basically come to the same solution. So it's complicated, but there are very real infrastructure challenges, and the political debate, which is immediate, ignores the long-term time frame we're looking at. Right. But the thing that I think we should be as a clean tech community taking as a lesson for this is don't let any good crisis go to waste. I mean, you know, the natural gas industry had Boehner locked and loaded right when this happened and said, hey, you should open up oil exports. You should open up natural gas exports. You should do all these things. And we didn't have our issues locked and loaded. And so um, my hope is that next time a crisis like this happens, we actually have our talking points lined up and our spokespeople lined up. Yeah, I agree. I think that we should not poo-poo the fact that we can do energy efficiency and renewables. There are a hundred, there are a thousand hydro plants, small hydro plants over there that have just gone fallow that could be, you know, recommissioned to start working right away. This is renewables allowing for geopolitical stability, and I think we shouldn't downplay that. All right. Well, speaking of another political debate, let's chat about another story coming out of the Senate this week. Uh, starting Monday evening, a group of 28 Democrats or 26 Democrats and two independent senators kept the floor open all night with speeches about climate change. The talkathon, as it's called, was a way to raise awareness about addressing the issue of climate change, even though there's not a specific piece of legislation or plan they were actually touting. Texas Republican Ted Cruz recently used this tactic to rail on Obamacare and government spending. It didn't have a direct political impact on legislation, but it certainly raised his profile. So does a climate talkathon have even close to the same influence? Catherine, let's uh, turn to you again and get the Washington perspective. How meaningful do you think this talkathon was? Uh, the the ever wonderful channel C-SPAN where you have senator after senator coming up with foam core boards on tripods that have charts and photographs. They have no technology capability on the Senate floor. Um, I think what this shows is the gag order has come off of members of Congress to be able to talk about climate change. Remember in 2009 and 2010, when cap and trade succeeded in the House and fell apart in the Senate, you know, partly because they couldn't get the votes and partly because the president decided to that he needed to get health care done. Uh, we were then not able to talk about climate change anymore, and nobody was allowed to talk about it. In 2010, Citizens United also, uh, the decision was made, and the oil companies really stepped up and pretty much paid for a new House of Representatives. So we haven't been able to talk about climate, and finally they're doing it. And I think you know the, the issue is let's raise these topics. Maybe something won't happen today. Maybe they don't have a legislative initiative at the moment, but they were they were talking about the economic, the bad economic impact of climate change, as well as the economic benefit of innovation, investments in, in solutions to climate change and clean energy. So I feel like if they can start getting this put into our mindsets, these narratives, that they will then be able to rebuild public support. And I think that was the you know, part of it was public support and part of it was to bring their donors to the table to say, look, we can talk about this. We have to talk about it. And this is only the 30th time, I think, in the last 100 years that the Senate has been overtaken like this. So it's actually quite historic. This has been a long time coming. I think it's helpful to remember where we've come from. So Senate Democrats really walked away from talking about climate change after the failure of the climate bill and environmental groups 
tried to re-hone their strategy. They did a lot of poll- local polling and found that people still wanted candidates to talk about climate change. And they've been pressing Democrats and even some Republicans to talk about climate in upcoming elections. 2014 was really the first time we saw environmental groups spend a lot of money on climate and clean energy and try to influence elections based on those uh, issues. I think it's up for debate the lasting impact on climate policy. But now 2016 going into this, we have $100 million from Tom Steyer. He's been really involved over the last couple of years to try to get Democrats to talk about climate change. So this has been a multi-year strategy. And this talkathon is the beginning of a much more comprehensive strategy to actually talk about these issues in the upcoming election. And and again, I think this has been a long time coming and behind the scenes, people have been talking about this for quite some time. So this is the first public manifestation of that. Yeah. And you so- look at the history. So the Clean Air Act was passed unanimously. There was a lot of horse trading, but basically it was totally bipartisan. And now you see last week the House had a vote to strip the EPA of their greenhouse gas authority, and only three Republicans voted against it, one by accident. So there were really only two, Gibson from New York and Lobiondo from New Jersey, both of who were actually impacted by Superstorm Sandy and have tight races. Um, So, you know, it's just completely changed. CPAC was handing out free T-shirts that said, I heart fossil fuels. So what I don't understand is from the clean tech entrepreneur's perspective, what's the plan? So you have $100 million that you spend to force candidates to talk about climate change. Okay. But to what end? Are we trying to get more incentives for clean energy technologies? Are we trying to pass a carbon tax? Are we going to do it using sort of the plan the Republicans have put forward or what the Republican economists have put forward, which are around, um, you know, like sort of taking back um, um, some of the Social Security and Medicare taxes and, and, you know, replacing that with a carbon tax? I mean, what is the plan here? What are we all shooting for with all this talking? And that's been the analysis. I think a lot of people are wondering what the end goal is because there's no specific piece of legislation in a pre-conference call. The leading senators admitted to that and said that they just want to raise awareness. I think there's a value to that because lawmakers in Washington have been so afraid of talking about climate. But when when it comes to an end goal, I do agree with you, Jigger. There's not much there, and it leaves a lot of room for criticism in the press, and, and that's what we've seen. Yeah, but part of the deal is they need to get their constituents back and thinking about climate change. So when Maria Cantwell stands up and says, look, because of the increased acidity of the ocean, because of what we're doing with climate, you're losing your job in crabbing, that actually touches a person who has lost their job or is no longer able to make an income in the crab industry. So what they're doing is they're shooting, for examples, right at their doorstep of their constituents to say, this is how you are losing money. This is how you are losing jobs. And there is a potential to get better and to increase our economy by investing in the right things. And Ed Markey actually made a really interesting point. So the senator from Massachusetts, formerly a a member of the House, for a decade, he stood up on the House floor and called for increases to fuel economy standards when no one wanted to do it. And over time, He created a constituency, and he was able to push the politics so that fuel economy standards were eventually passed. And he basically said, that's what we want to try to do on climate. We recognize that we don't have a specific end goal here, but at a time when no one is talking about it, we have to start somewhere. 
And I think there's something to that. Right, but then don't like – I mean if you can't explain what the, the pathway is, don't expect the clean tech industry to understand is all I'm saying. I mean many of the folks in the clean tech industry are not progressive. They're neutral um, and nonpartisan. And from their perspective, they're saying, if you want me to write an op-ed for a carbon tax, tell me why. If you want me to talk to my congressman about climate change and its existence, tell me exactly why. Right, Because a lot of what they're doing is every day they're going out to business owners trying to get them to put solar on their roof or energy efficiency in their buildings, etc. And the existence of climate change is not a conversation they have to engage in to close a customer. Interestingly, let's bring this back to elections, though, because what you saw were key conservative Democrats that are facing tough reelections, people like Mark Begich in uh, Alaska, Mark Pryor of Arkansas, Kay Hagan in North Carolina, Mary Landrieu of Louisiana – they weren't there on the Senate floor. And I think it speaks to the fear that some Democrats still have about talking about climate change in states where they have a tough battle ahead of them. Yeah. And that's why I think it shows that this is about getting constituents. So they know their constituents. They know which ones can speak to their constituents with this and which ones need to be more careful. I think it was you know very carefully planned that way. Okay, but I just hope that someone explains this to the clean tech community at some point because my sense is most of them are just completely confused as to what their role is in doing this. I mean, from Sia and Awea to the individual business owners. So who should be doing that? Do you think Tom Steyer is the man to do that? He's the one who's spending tens of millions of dollars to influence the elections. Well, I mean, I think as I've been saying for a long time, I mean, I wish these senators who are basically filibustering on the floor – we're willing to actually say this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our time, that we actually can solve um, some of the challenges in the Ukraine and other places around the world through the deployment of American developed clean energy. I wish that some of them would talk about the fact that the average American family is paying $6,000 more for energy today than they were in 1999. And we have the technologies to deploy at scale right now to save them $6,000 a year. But they're not saying any of that stuff. Well, they, they were talking about innovation. They did. I honestly, I couldn't stay up the whole night. I did have the TV on. So every once in a while, I would wake up and see somebody who looked like they'd been sleeping in their car and they would talk about innovation. So I, they did talk about that. But it was definitely, you know, that and the negative implications of climate change. So it was, it was both, but they did talk about innovation and how important it is. Yeah, but I'm not talking about innovation. I'm talking about deployment. These senators were elected by 51% or more of, their constitu- of, of the people in their state. Those people could put solar on their rooftops, energy efficiency, buy an electric car. They can do all sorts of stuff. And they're not actually on the front lines of getting our country converted to clean energy. They make these speeches about how ARPA is great and how we should continue to invest in innovation. But they're not actually saying that, look, if you're not putting a solar system on your house right now, you're a dummy because you're paying 20% too much to the electric utility industry for that power. All right. Well, let's move from American innovation to overseas innovation. And in recent months, we've seen millions in venture capital flow into companies deploying off-grid cleantech solutions in developing countries. It's still a small amount compared to other areas of energy, but it seems that off-grid solar, lighting, and storage are finally getting some serious attention. So is Silicon Valley about to tap the next big growth market? Jigger, does this recent activity, uh, eleven millions in the eleven million dollars in the solar lighting company D Light, two million dollars from Kosla Impact for this company B Box that's developing plug and play off grid solar, and a couple other companies, 
Does that mark a trend to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to note that when I started in the solar industry in 95, the off-grid solar market was larger than the on-grid solar market. And that market in the US globally. Yeah. And that and you know, from telecom systems on the top of mountains to, you know, rural electrification that Neville Williams was championing with Selco. Um, I think that that market you know, has been growing consistently every year since then. It's just that the grid-connected market has grown faster um, and now dwarfs that market. But this, for instance, there are four or five new companies that I met the other day who are focused on uh, replacing the diesel generators used by the fracking industry um, with clean energy generators because it's far cheaper than using diesel in those markets. And so I think that there's a always been a lot of profit to be made in the off-grid space because the economics were just so obvious. What's interesting about these investments is that people now believe that the technology is ready to provide light to 1.6 billion people around the world who don't have access to it affordably today. And that, to me, is really inspiring. And so that brings me to the influence that venture capitalists can bring. So do you think that these private dollars that show a vote of confidence for these off-grid solar companies and lighting companies, do they have an influence on these big international financing institutions that are so slow to move? Will there be a tipping point here? And how much of an impact will venture investors have on pushing that tipping point? Yeah, no, this will be a huge uh, boost to getting this done. I think when you think about the diesel and kerosene import bills of many of these countries from India to Kenya, India has admitted freely that the importation of fuel is the reason the rupee has been devalued. So they desperately want to figure out how to solve this problem on diesel and kerosene. And now that you've got high um, high PR, high press, high profile investments from the venture capital community, you're going to see huge shifts from the Ministry of New Renewable Resources and some of these other government agencies, as well as their donors, to actually help these guys push the technologies out the door. And so I do think that they have a catalytic impact. These funding raises are significant, but they take a long time. And funding is extremely difficult in this space. Um, And Justin Gway, who we had on the podcast Uh, last year to talk about uh, off-grid solar, had this quote in one of his stories that he wrote for our website. And one of the entrepreneurs said it could take well over a year or a couple of years to close around. It's very slow for many of these companies that are scraping by. And I'm just curious if you, since you're uniquely qualified, Jigger, to talk about venture finance in this country and venture finance in developing markets, what advice do you have for both investors and the entrepreneurs seeking to raise money and may have a hard time doing so. So I think it's important to note that a lot has changed since we had Justin on the show. When Justin was on the show, the only people that were investing in these areas were impact investors. And by definition, a lot of mainstream investors don't like impact investors because they think wherever those impact investors go, losses seem to follow. And so these investments are actually from mainstream investors where people actually see themselves making a 10x return on this money. And I think that that's the critical difference. And even my own thinking, frankly, has changed in the last six months. I thought that six months ago this was a promising area. Now I have supreme confidence that within the next 10 years, every single one of the 1.6 billion people around the world that don't have electricity today will be cost-effectively supplied by the 50 or 100 companies in this space 
that are profitably deploying these solutions. And, and so that's a big deal. Jigger, I had the most interesting conversation yesterday with this group from ASEP, which is the Alaska Center for Energy and Power. And Alaska in, is the, the only state in this country, really, that has a lot of the similar issues that developing countries have in that they're they're totally dependent in some places on barges and small airplanes getting fuel to them. Their cost of energy is exorbitant. And they were saying that they want to learn from how renewables are being deployed in developing countries to be able to do the same thing right here in the U.S., in Alaska. No, it's absolutely right. It's the Alaska Village Electric Cooperative. And I remember several of those villages, um, like Noah Talk and a few others, are, are actually helicoptering in diesel fuel. So it's about $2 or $3 a kilowatt hour up there. Fascinating stuff. So let's wrap up here and tell our listeners something they may not know. Catherine, what do you have? Yes, a friend of mine from Austin, Brett Kadizen, had bid on a project for Austin Energy to uh, provide several, you know, many megawatts of solar, and they didn't. His company didn't win, but what he did say is that um, Sun Edison won the bid. They provided 150 megawatts of solar uh, to solar farms in West Texas at a price of five cents a kilowatt hour. It's below the all-in cost of natural gas generation. It'll result in lower rates for Austin Energy customers. It's in a red state where oil and gas are king and queen. Um, and so it's it's a fairly significant move by Austin Energy and thought it would be worth talking about. No, look, I think Texas has been the sleeping giant for a long time. When you look at the wind industry, uh, California has around 5,000 megawatts of wind, and Texas has about 12,000 megawatts of wind. And so when Texas jumps in with both feet, it jumps in big. And so I think that this basically is a is a signal, I think, that's going to lead to thousands and thousands of megawatts of new solar going into Texas. And so I think it's a huge thing. Five cent PPA. Incredible. So much is changing so quickly. Jigger, what's your story this week? Well, you know, a couple of things. One is, is that, you know, just on the tariff case, um, the Department of Commerce delayed the CVD um, determination. Um, so that means that the initial tariffs on solar panels have been delayed to June. Um, and so, you know, for what's that, for whatever that's worth, I think that, um, um, you know, the chaos will continue um, in the marketplace. But but the other thing I was going to talk about is I've been following the anaerobic digester space in a big way. And there's over 100 developers working on anaerobic digester projects in the U.S. And I think that's significant because Germany's been working on anaerobic digesters, which is con converting organic waste into electricity or renewable natural gas for over 10 years and has done it quite successfully. Um, the U.S. is only now starting. And so I think you're going to see a huge billion dollar business come in the anaerobic digester space in the U.S. Let's export anaerobic digestion technologies to Ukraine. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> Would work really well there. All right. Well, I've just got a quick update on uh, net metering battles here. So this week, the Louisiana utility Entergy is the latest utility to attempt to push for a change in net metering. And the uh, Public Service Commission in the state is set to decide Wednesday on whether to raise the very, very small cap on net metering from 0.5% to 3%. Um, at the same time, though, the utilities are actually asking to either lower the payments to customers or to get rid of net metering altogether. Those are very much on the table. And a lot of local advocacy groups are working hard on this one. 
and uh, hope to convince the Public Service Commission to raise the cap and to to commission an objective study on the value of solar on Louisiana's grid so that they can preserve net metering and potentially raise the, the actual cap. So Louisiana is a pretty interesting market here. It's still very small, but it has this 50% refundable tax credit for solar PV and for solar hot water that's uh, in place, I think, through 2017. And the state is still small enough that um, the GTM research team doesn't track it closely, but it's certainly an up-and-coming market, and I suspect that we're going to start tracking it next year. But you know, with changes to net metering policies, it could potentially fizzle out before it even gets started because the sector carrying the industry is residential. So net metering really matters there. So the battle lines have been drawn in states with higher penetrations of solar, where the utilities are starting to get worried about declining revenues in coming years. And it's really interesting that you're seeing utilities with very little penetration in a state like Louisiana attempt to cut those policies short. Sign of the times. Well, the thing is, though, Stephen, is that the governor supports net metering there, and 80% of the residents of Louisiana support net metering. That's right. Yeah, folks don't think that energy has a shot. Interesting development because it shows that utilities, even with low penetrations of solar PV, are worried and want to nip this in the bud early. So that's all for the show this week. Thanks for dropping by and listening in. For more links to the stories we covered, head on over to greentechmedia.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast as well. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and now Swell Radio. If you use any of those platforms, be sure to leave us a review or rate us. And we appreciate the ratings we've already gotten from our listeners, so thanks for that. If you want to contact us with story ideas, questions, comments, you can email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And I'll be sure to share those with Jigger and Catherine. And with that, let's wrap up the show. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week. Good talking to you. Yeah, thanks. You too. Enjoy baseball. Yeah. And Jigger, you as well. Any baseball in your future? No, but I did see that video of uh, President Obama and uh, Zach Galifianakis. Galifianakis. And I have to say that, like, even though it was funny, I'm surprised that the president agreed to do that. Well, he certainly stepped over the bounds of what you can do when you talk to a president. If people don't know what we're talking about, go to funnierdie.com and see Zach Galifianakis' show, Between Two Ferns. The president went on the show. This is a show where Zach interviews celebrities in the most awkward way possible. And the president was actually on there to talk about healthcare.gov. I think that it was a stroke of genius from the White House because millions and millions of people watch that show. The age bracket that whitehouse.gov is trying to target in order to drive down health care costs. So, you know, he stepped over the line, but it's really funny and I think an effective marketing strategy from the White House. Interesting. So are you, so you going to go watch it again? <laughs> One time was enough. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great week, Jigger. Yeah, you too. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. 